there really is nothing in this world that compares to knowing you. I think of the words of the Apostle Paul in Philippians 3 when he says, I count everything a loss compared to the surpassing greatness of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. Lord, it is so easy to get caught up in the things of this world and in the desires and the goals and the dreams that we have. And in the midst of that, to lose sight of what you are calling us to do, Lord. And I pray that in our time together this morning, as we open your word together, and that you will impress upon us in fresh ways this life that you're calling us to live and how we can live that life, Lord. Please be our teacher this morning through your word and through your spirit and help us to not merely be hearers of the word, but to also apply what you are saying to us. And we pray these things in your name. Amen. I want to start this morning with a question for you. It's a rhetorical question. It's something just to think about in your minds. The question is this. When you hear good information that could make a positive impact in your life, it makes sense that we'd want to apply the information, correct? I mean, you have good information that would make a positive impact. Again, it makes sense that you would want to apply it. Well, about three and a half months ago, the Food and Drug Administration here in America passed a new law that requires all chain restaurants and all movie theaters and all vending machines to prominently display the calorie counts of all the food and all the drinks that they sell. And over the next year, chain restaurants, movie theaters, and vending machines have to come into compliance with this law. And on the surface, this type of law makes a lot of sense. I mean, the premise is this, that say you have someone at a a restaurant and they see the hamburger has 800 calories in it and the chicken has 500 calories. Well, it would make sense then that the consumer, out of a desire to live a healthier lifestyle, would choose the chicken because it has fewer calories. That's the premise behind this type of thinking. The problem is that this sort of information that is given to people oftentimes is not applied. It's not that people don't think it's important. In fact, about 75% of Americans think this idea of calorie counts on food is a great idea. And the majority say that if they were given this sort of information, they would apply it in how they purchase food at restaurants. But again, in fact, good information does not always lead to life transformation. There was uh, a recent research project that examined 31 studies that took place over the last eight years. And each of these studies examined how calorie counts at restaurants affect people's choices of what they're going to order. And the the overwhelming outcome of all this research of these 31 different studies found that the vast majority of people don't really have any difference in what they choose to purchase in terms of food when there is a calorie count available. They purchase the same thing, whether it has a lot of calories or a few calories, whether it's posted or whether it's not posted. Again, good information doesn't always lead to life transformation. And in reality, good information in and of itself rarely makes any sort of significant lasting difference. Now, we are a church. We are not Weight Watchers. Our calling as a church is to make disciples of Jesus. Now, part of being a disciple of Jesus is being a faithful steward of our bodies and our health. But this isn't the reason why I share this story this morning. The reason I share it is to illustrate how we as humans struggle so much to put good information into action in our lives. We're right now, today, finishing up a series on the Sermon on the Mount. 
And throughout the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus shares a lot of great information about how we should live in light of the kingdom of God. And in wrapping up the Sermon on the Mount in terms of what we are looking at today, we see that Jesus knows that we as humans struggle to put good information into action. And so he ends the Sermon on the Mount with a very clear uh, call, even a warning of sorts, about the importance of not merely listening to what he says, but really putting it into practice. I invite you to turn in your Bibles to Matthew chapter 7. Matthew 7. As I said, this is the last week of the Sermon on the Mount series. Next week, we're reading a new series. It's called Crosswords, not Crossroads, Crosswords. And it's going to extend through Easter, and it's really focusing on key words that help us to understand the significance of what Christ accomplished for us through his death. We're going to be looking at words like atonement, like justification. It may be words that we don't use that much in everyday terminology, everyday conversation, but they're words that really help us understand the significance of Jesus' life, death, and resurrection. So that is starting next week. But today we're wrapping up the Sermon on the Mount, so I invite you to follow along in your Bibles as I read Matthew 7, beginning in verse 21. Jesus says, Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but only the one who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. Many will say to me on that day, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name, and in your name drive out demons, and in your name perform many miracles? Then I will tell them plainly, I never knew you. Away from me, you evildoers. Now, the main idea that Jesus is trying to get across to us here at the end of the Sermon on the Mount is that obedience as an outflow of faith is necessary for getting into heaven. He's talking about obedience, about putting his words into action. I know that that statement that I just put up there on the PowerPoint, is, is, it, there's a lot in there. And we want to spend our time together unpacking that statement in light of what Jesus says here in this passage, in the context of what he's talking about here is the final judgment. Now, we, when we're talking about this idea of the kingdom of God, we have to understand that it has both a present reality and a future reality. Presently, we all can experience uh, a taste of life in God's kingdom as we submit to Jesus as king, as we put him on the throne of our lives. But his kingdom has not yet fully come. It will fully come in all its glory when Jesus returns. So we're looking ahead to that day and that is the context in the future, the final judgment that Jesus is talking about here. And we see two indicators in this passage that indicate he's talking about the final judgment. First of all, he's using future tense here. He talks about um, people will enter the kingdom of heaven. He says, many will say to me on that day, then I will tell them plainly. He's talking in the future tense, something that will happen not today, but it could be today, but sometime in the future. It hasn't happened yet. The other even more clear indicator is a phrase in, in the beginning of verse 22, and he says, many will say to me, on that day. Now this phrase, on that day, is a loaded phrase because it's a phrase that throughout the Old Testament and the New Testament refers to the day of judgment. On that day, and like I said, it occurs throughout the Old, Old and New Testament. Um, once you begin to recognize that's a key phrase, you'll probably see it more as you read the Bible. But it's referring to that day of judgment. So the context here is the final judgment. We have to understand that back in Jesus' culture, ideas, uh, topics of eternity, topics of, of this final judgment, were common topics of conversation for people. 
In our culture, we may think, why would people talk about that? I mean, in our culture, we live in a much more secular culture, which means that by nature of a secular culture, we don't talk or even think that much about things of eternity and things of eternal judgment. Back in that culture, it was common. Today, not so much. And in fact, this idea of, of the secularization of culture has even infiltrated the thinking of average Christians. So that even normal Christians today oftentimes don't think all that much about things of eternity. Instead, we get focused on the here and now and what's going on today and what's going on in this world rather than what goes on in eternity. But when we look at the biblical worldview, we see that things of eternity and even this final judgment are really important things to be focused on. And so Jesus is talking about the final judgment, and he's talking specifically about outwardly impressive Christians. I put Christians in quotation marks to say, you know what, they look like Christians, but evidently they are not. But outwardly they are quite impressive. I mean, they speak with great reverence to Jesus. They say, Lord, Lord. This idea of, of speaking to someone in that culture as Lord is kind of like saying sir or even, even more so master. It's a, it's a designation of respect and even authority. And so they're coming to Jesus with great respect. They're saying Lord, Lord, and, and they indicate that they've done a lot of great things in Jesus' name. Odds are good they probably have pretty good theology. They, they have a pretty good biblical understanding of things. Yet Jesus says to them, um, Many will say to me on that day, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name and in your name drive out demons and in your name perform many miracles? And he says, then I will tell them plainly, I never knew you. Away from me, you evildoers. So this is just a stark wake-up call because you have these people who probably thought they were doing pretty well. They respected Jesus. They, they spoke nicely of him. They liked doing nice things in his name. They probably thought, you know what, we're doing pretty well. And then they stand before Jesus at the final judgment and realize, hey, things aren't quite as good. And, I mean, it's a, it's a really stark picture here because these people, they're cast out of his presence forever. And we may wonder, how could this be? Because, you know, they're doing good things. They, they don't think badly about Jesus at all. So, so why did this happen? Well, the key is back up in verse 21. Jesus says, not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but only the one who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. So the key here is doing the will of the Father. Evidently, these people who outwardly look like very impressive Christians, look like they had their stuff together, like they really were honoring God. Even though they liked being associated with Jesus, they spoke nicely of him, they did nice things in his name. Evidently, their hearts weren't really submitted to him as Lord. They were giving the lip service, but it wasn't backed up. They weren't living with Jesus as king. They were still in the driver's seat of their lives rather than submitting themselves to him. And so Jesus is pointing out the importance of not just saying nice things about Jesus, not just associating ourselves with him, or not just serving in ministry in his name, but really submitting our lives to him, doing God's will rather than just our own will. So that's what Jesus is talking about here. And I mean, we could describe this as the necessity of obedience. That's what Jesus is saying is that obedience is important and even necessary. Now, I know for some of us, this, this idea of talking about obedience kind of causes our spiritual radar to go up. 
And we get kind of concerned of, okay, are, are we distorted in the gospel here? Are we saying that you get to heaven by some sort of good works rather than by grace and faith? That's not what we're saying. And you have to bear with me through this because, I mean, it gets pretty deep here to figure out what is this talking about. Salvation only comes by faith. I mean, Ephesians 2, 8, 9 spells it out very clearly when Paul writes, For it is by grace you have been saved, through faith. And this is not from yourselves, it is the gift of God, not by works, so that no one can boast. So he's very clear, we don't get to heaven by works, by obedience. There's not a performance plan for getting to heaven. It's only by grace, an undeserved, unmerited gift through faith. So it's faith and grace that gets us to heaven, not our good works. Yet even still, throughout Scripture, we see uh, this idea of obedience, of applying God's will, also lifted up. And, and it's said to be very important. So how does this all work out together when Jesus says we need to do God's will in order to get to heaven? But, but faith is what gets us there. How does this all work out? Well, one quote that's been very helpful to me through the years comes from Martin Luther. He said, faith alone saves but saving faith is never alone. Faith alone saves, but saving faith is never, never alone. Like I said, this is something that's really helped me in my mind just kind of put together these pieces of how does all this work together. And so it's very clear is when you look at this idea that, that faith alone saves. There isn't a performance plan for heaven. Good works aren't going to get us there. But when you look at what true faith biblically really is, true faith will make a difference in our lives. It's not merely lip service. It's not merely a right set of beliefs. But true faith really gets down into our hearts and changes our lives from the inside out. It, true faith bears fruit of spiritual growth, of growth in character, growth in holiness, growth in love for God and for others, of obeying and doing God's will. doesn't mean we'll be perfect because we never will be perfect in this lifetime. But it does mean that over the course of time, true saving faith will bear fruit in our lives. But again, it's not lip service, but it really makes a difference in how we live. Let me give you an illustration, uh, not from the realm of, of religious stuff, but from the realm of marriage to really put this into perspective. Imagine with me that you have a husband and a wife. The husband is very intentional to frequently tell his wife that he loves her. I mean, on a very regular basis, he's like, I love you. I love you. I love you. But this husband is also a workaholic. The husband works 60, 70, 80 hours a week at times. And the wife wants more time with her husband. Now, the husband says, you know, I love you. But my work is calling me. I love you, but I have a lot of stuff that I need to do there. And so the wife thinks, okay, he loves me, but he needs to do all this work. And so she's still feeling kind of neglected there, even though he keeps saying, I love you, I love you, I love you. One day he comes home and announces, you know what? I love you so much. I made a vow today that I'm going to work less. And you can imagine her heart at this point. Her heart's probably fluttering. It's probably kind of excited. She's dreaming about how in the coming weeks and months they'll be able to share special time together, do special things. And it's all because he loves her. But it doesn't take very long. The husband does follow through on not working as much, but it doesn't take very long before his hobbies begin to catch his attention. 
Perhaps it's golfing. Perhaps it's fishing. Perhaps hanging out with the guys. Perhaps working in the garage. Perhaps watching TV. And she begins to get more frustrated because even though he keeps saying, you know what, I love you, I love you, I love you, she's not getting any more attention. She's not feeling cared for. And then it comes out over the course of time that, that over the last few years, he has had a couple of different affairs with other women. Now, you can imagine her pain and her heartache in that time. And he sees that pain. He says, you know, honey, I love you. Those other women, they, they don't really mean anything to me compared to you because you are the one who has my heart. I love you so much. But then the, 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 the trend continues where she wants to spend time with him, where she wants to um, be able to, to share with him when she has a bad day. But he says, you know, I love you, but I don't have time for this right now. And it becomes very clear over the course of time, over and over and over, that his, his saying, I love you, is pretty much just lip service because his actions are not living it out. Now, there are times that he buys her flowers I mean, he does sometimes take out the trash. He, he washes her car. He makes sure the bills are paid. So he's doing some decent things around the house. And he is always intentional to say, I love you, I love you, I love you. But even so, anyone who is observing what's taking place there would have to seriously doubt whether he's living that out. Because he has the words, but words don't really mean much. Talk is cheap if they aren't backed up by loving actions. And it's similar uh, in, in, in our walk with God as it is in our relationships with others around us. That just as love needs to be demonstrated through loving actions, so faith is demonstrated through obedient actions. Faith alone saves, but saving faith is never alone. Talk is cheap. It's not a matter of lip service, but that's what Jesus is essentially saying is going on here with these people who claim to be close to him. But in the end... Jesus makes it clear that they don't really know him. In fact, he says that, verse 23, he says, Then I will tell them plainly, I never knew you. Away from me, you evildoers. This idea of knowing here is not just some acquaintance. It's not just that you recognize someone. It's the idea of an intimate, personal relationship. That was what this idea of knowing someone meant back in that culture. And Jesus looked at these people and said, You know what? Yes, you're speaking to me with respect. Yes, you, you did some cool things in my name. But you were not submitted to me. You weren't really seeking to know me. You weren't seeking to engage me. You weren't really following me. You were following your own will just with this Christian veneer. And that's a very dangerous place to be spiritually. But again, Scripture upholds this, this value of not merely being, uh, here is the word, but doing it. John 14, verse 15. This is Jesus. He says, if you love me, you will obey what I command. He speaks very highly of the importance of obedience. Similarly, 1 John chapter 5, verse 3. This is love to God, to obey his commands. So obedience is lifted up highly in Scripture. And that's even how Jesus closes out the Sermon on the Mount. So we see that obedience is very important. In fact, uh, Jesus closes out the, the Sermon on the Mount with this story, as Pastor David already shared in the children's message, which is probably familiar to the majority of us. I want to read it now, verses 24 through 28, which continues to drive home this point of putting God's Word into practice. 
Jesus says, Therefore, everyone who hears these words of mine and puts them into practice is like a wise man who built his house on a rock. The rain came down, the streams rose, and the winds blew and beat against that house. Yet it did not fall, because it had its foundation on the rock. But everyone who hears these words of mine and does not put them into practice is like a foolish man who built his house on the sand. The rain came down, the stream rose, the winds blew against the house, and it fell with a great crash. So we have this picture here of two builders. And what Jesus is doing is just continuing, trying to apply this idea of putting his words into action, putting them into practice. He begins this passage with, therefore, it shows the continuation of thought from what he'd just previously been saying. And he tells a story about two builders. And the focus is on how they are building. Now, the big distinction between these two houses is the foundation. One builder does the work to dig down the bedrock to, for the foundation. The other builder just builds on the bare ground, here described as sand. Now, externally, for a while, these two houses look very, very similar. But then a big storm comes along, and it shows one has a strong foundation. It stands firm. The other one comes crashing down. Now, I think the, the tendency for many of us when we hear this idea of talking about these different foundations, the tendency is to think that this foundation is talking about building on the foundation of Jesus. But we have to recognize that, that this metaphor of foundation is used in a variety of different ways through Scripture. To be sure, the most common way is talking about building with Jesus as our foundation. That is certainly a true way to talk about a foundation in our lives and in our ministry and in our faith is the foundation of Christ. But here in this particular passage, the, the, the idea is not necessarily building on the foundation of Christ. The, the distinction between these two foundations is based on obedience. This difference between obedience and disobedience. Because Jesus says, Therefore, everyone who hears these words of mine and puts them into practice is like the wise man who built his house on the rock. But everyone who hears these words of mine and does not put them into practice is like the foolish man who built it on the sand. So the difference between the two is whether or not we put Jesus' words into action. It's the difference between obedience and disobedience. And there will be storms of life that come along. We all experience them. They really expose whether our faith is in God, whether we're trusting in Him, or whether we're trusting in something else. And the ultimate storm that we will all face at some point, using this metaphor of a storm, is that final judgment that will show whether we were building on the foundation of Christ through obedience or whether we were building on some other foundation that will ultimately not stand the test of time. And so Jesus is calling us to apply his words. And I want to read the last couple verses of Matthew chapter 7. It records the crowd's response here. It says, When Jesus had finished saying these things, the crowds were amazed as teaching because he taught as one who had authority and not as their teachers of the law. They were amazed, and they were amazed because of the authority with which he taught. You see, the, the Jewish leaders of that day, the teachers of the law, they would not teach based on their own authority. But whenever they would say something, they would try to ground it in something that some previous rabbi had said. They would say, okay, this is true because such and such rabbi says it. But Jesus came along, 
And he is not saying this is true because so-and-so said it. He's saying it's true because I said it. And this amazed and shocked the crowds there. And it literally says they were amazed at his teaching. They thought this is the best sermon we've ever heard. In fact, it is the best sermon that's been given of all times. I mean, it's a sermon that is praised all over the place. But Jesus' intent here is not simply that we praise his sermon. And not simply that we stand amazed to the set we put it into practice. That we put not just his words here in the sermon into practice, but all of God's word into practice. James 1.22 says, Do not merely listen to the word and so deceive yourselves. Do what it says. Uh, that, that phrase about, and so deceive yourselves, really captures my attention there because it's so easy to deceive ourselves thinking, okay, if we memorize God's word, if we read God's word, if we talk about it, if we study, if we debate what it's saying and how we interpret it, we so easily get stuck there. But if we do that, we are, we're short-circuiting what Jesus intends for us because he wants us not merely to study it and memorize it, but he wants us to apply it. Now, when we're talking about this idea of obedience and of applying God's word, it's kind of a dangerous thing to talk about. And the reason I say it's a dangerous topic, for, especially for a sermon, is because it is easy for us as human beings to distort the gospel when we are talking about obedience. Because the gospel is the good news that through Jesus and his perfect life, death, and the resurrection, and through faith in what he did for us, of him paying the penalty for us and offering us new life, that through that faith and that grace, we can have new life. But what we end up doing when we are focused on obedience is that we, we stop focusing on grace as a gift and stop focusing on receiving that gift by faith when we start focusing on ourselves and what we are doing. And what we end up doing is thinking that our obedience is earning us merit points in God's eyes. I mean, we are inherently legalistic people. Now, legalistic means that we are focused on rules and laws. Now, you may be thinking, I'm not legalistic. I don't like rules and laws. Most of us inherently don't like them. But our natural bent as human beings is to look to rules or look to milestones as our measure for how we are doing. If we're keeping the rules, even rules, whether we set, up, set them up, whether the, the government set them up, whether their rules of, and standards their society uh, says are important, if we keep them, we feel good about ourselves. If we're struggling to keep them or even keep God's word, then we are beating ourselves up and we're feeling really bad about ourselves. We like some sort of scorecard to determine how are we doing. And so we look to rules. And when we're talking about obedience, again, it, it can easily become something that we focus on these rules rather than focusing on Jesus. Now, Pastor Tim Keller, who pastors in New York City, offers a great description of how faith and obedience fit together. He says that religion says, I obey, therefore I'm accepted by God. The gospel says I'm accepted by God through Christ, therefore I obey. Now, in both of these, obedience is a part of the equation. But the motivations are very different. The first one says, because I obey, I'm earning merit points in God's sight. And if I earn enough merit points, then God will accept me and love me. That is not the Bible. And that is not the gospel. The gospel says, I am accepted by God, I'm loved by God, I'm cherished by God. There's no condemnation, therefore, for those who are in Christ. 
And therefore, because of that, because of his grace and faith, I am obeying him out of gratitude. It's a response out of gratitude where I'm doing it from wholeheartedly because I want to, not because I think I need to earn God's favor. There's a huge difference here, and I think it's one that we need to internalize. Now, I want to just give a series of statements just to make sure, do my best to make sure we're as clear as we can be on the difference between these. So the biblical perspective here is not that obedience is what gets us into heaven. This is not the biblical perspective. I mean, that's the perspective of good works. This is the common perspective in our culture today, that if you do enough good works, you'll earn God's favor and get to heaven when you die. That's not what the Bible's saying. The Bible is also not saying that obedience doesn't matter. I mean, this is the idea of, okay, God gives us grace. It doesn't really matter how we live. We're going to get to heaven regardless because God gives us grace. Why don't we just keep on sinning? Grace will abound more. That's viewing the gospel as some sort of get out of hell free card. That's not biblical either. Now, a third way that is not biblical is looking at um, a balance of faith and obedience getting us to heaven. It's not some balance there like, okay, it's 50% faith, 50% obedience, or 70% faith, 70, 70 or 30% obedience. It's not like that at all. It's 100% faith and obedience follows out of gratitude. It's the fruit of faith that's truly being lived out. So it's not a balance. It's 100% faith and grace that gets us to heaven. Now, what the biblical perspective is, is that faith gets us to heaven and true faith bears the fruit of obedience. It's faith alone that gets us to heaven. But true faith bears the fruit of of obedience. It's like in John 15, Jesus talks about abide me, stay connected to me, focus on me, and then I will bear fruit through you. And that is the key to focus in on Jesus, to make it our, our, our heartfelt and our wholehearted devotion to focus on him. And as we do that, he will take care of the rest. He will transform our hearts from the inside out if we put him on the throne of our lives. Then obedience will happen naturally as the outflow of gratitude and worship, not out of earning merit points or trying to build ourselves up in God's eyes, our own eyes, or other people's eyes. Let me close with a story that is a story that I never thought I would share in a church service because it's so embarrassing. Um, But as I was preparing, I thought, you know what? It fits really well. It's a story that took place uh, this last October. Late in October, I was going bicycling with a friend. And I normally don't bicycle with other people. Normally, I'm by myself, maybe pulling the kids in the cart behind me, but not bicycling with someone else. We were on Wisconsin Street heading north out of town. Early morning, it's twilight. I mean, you can barely see anything at that point in the morning. We're bicycling along, and he, I'm on the curbside. He's on the roadside. And we're talking. He's a little bit behind me. And... He's sharing some sort of story that captures my attention. If you know me, I like to make eye contact when communicating with people. I think it shows respect. You can see where this is going. Um, so I'm just, I'm listening to the story, looking back at him. I notice he's pulling out into the lane of traffic a little bit. I'm wondering, what's going on? How come he's pulling out there? I'm looking back. Suddenly he yells, stop! I don't even have time to do anything. Suddenly I slam into the back of a car, a parked car. I mean, I wasn't going super fast, but it's still probably 13, 15 miles an hour. I'm sprawled out in the trunk of this car. I end up with a black eye, bent glasses, chipped tooth, 
bent up bicycle and a hugely bruised ego. That was the worst thing of all. That's why I thought I'd never share this story. But here's the key. When you're bicycling, focus straight ahead. You can still have a conversation with who's next to you. You can still take in the scenery. You can still listen to the birds sing. But you need to focus on what is ahead. It's the same thing in our faith. Focus on Jesus. Now, obedience is important. There are a lot of other things that are important. But those things are secondary. And those things will come with the journey if we keep that focus on Jesus. But as soon as we get that focus on Jesus, and as soon as we start focusing on something else, even something good, like obedience, like loving other people, um, things like that, like being good stewards of our money, whatever, these are all other good things. But if our focus gets on there, rather than on Jesus, what's going to end up happening is that we're going to have a big crash. Jesus here in Matthew chapter 7 is talking about the biggest crash of all when we stand before him. And he says, look, I never knew you. Get out of my presence. That is a huge crash. And that's what happens if we get our focus on something besides Christ. What Jesus is calling us to is to submit ourselves to him. And for this, we certainly need the help of others around us. I think of Hebrews chapter 10, verses 24 and 25, which says, Let us encourage each other. Let us not give up meeting together as some are in the habit of doing, but let us encourage each other and all the more as we see the day approaching. That day, it's the day of judgment, the day of Christ's return. As we see that day getting closer and closer, let us encourage each other to apply God's word. We need the accountability. We need the encouragement. We need people just helping us, not merely take good information into our mind, but let it transform our lives. This is a joint community effort to apply God's word. And my prayer is that we will be men and women as individuals and as a church who will not merely be hearers of the word, but doers of it as well. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, uh, there are so many things in this world that distract us. But I pray that you help us to focus our attention on you. Lord, I pray that the faith that we have will be true faith, not merely lip service, not merely head knowledge, but it will be faith that sinks into our hearts where we allow you to be on the throne of our hearts as our king, and that as we do that, that you will transform us and let it be true saving faith that when we stand before you here, that we will not hear away from me, I never knew you, but instead that we will hear the words, well done, good and faithful servant. Lord, may we be building on the foundation of Christ. And as we build on that foundation, may it be a foundation and a a structure that we are building with our lives that is based not on lip service and not on putting on a show for others, but based on truly applying your will to our lives. And we pray these things in your name. Amen.